if you've been around with us for a few weeks, you know that we're uh, just very gradually meandering our way through Genesis 1 to 3 and uh, reflecting on different perspectives, different uh, issues that come up. And um, today I, I want to talk about this being, being created to be known by one another. In fact, this is what I'm going to be talking about today. Okay, this is the, 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 the sort of shape of the sermon. I'm going to start talking about Playboy. I'm going to talk about sex and I'm going to talk about the sort of church we want to be. All right, that's the outline of the service sermon this morning. Playboy sex and the church we want to be. I don't know how many of you uh, read Playboy. Um, every... Pardon? <laughs> Show of hands. Uh, Playboy is, uh, for those of you who have never encountered it, Playboy is a magazine that has been published for around 60 years and used to have millions and millions and millions of readers around the world. Most of them men, because the big deal about Playboy was, of course, I don't say, I don't, I say of course, as though you all know, um, but of course was, it was about pinups and it was about nude pinups in the magazine. And if you ask men who uh, bought it at that time, the big sort of gag was, uh, I only read it for the articles, uh, not for the pictures. Well, this week, Playboy announced that from now on, that's all you're going to get, articles. Because this week, Playboy said, we're taking out all the nude pictures from our magazine. Which is an interesting move, first time in 60 years. And some of you will go, isn't that great news? Well, kind of. Although, to be honest, their circulation now is so small that it really doesn't matter. But the reason they did it was because of this. The chief exec, Scott Flanders, which... If you know about The Simpsons, is a little odd, but said, that battle has been fought and won. You're only one click away from every sex act imaginable for free. And so it's just passe to have nude pictures at this juncture. Which is a very interesting reflection on a decision by a, what has been a major publisher uh, over the last 60 years. There's no point now because we've won the battle. Because 60 years ago, when Playboy was sort of uh, coming uh, into its own and finding its own space and its own place in the culture, Playboy was pushing against an existing culture that said nudity is not what we do. Sex is the sexual revolution 60 years ago was just about to kick off. 1955. And so they were operating in a very different culture. And now they say we're part of a culture where we have fought the battle and we have won. Fascinating. This week, the news from Playboy. Because what Playboy did was they came along and they said, essentially, sex is about liberation and it's private. It's got nothing to do with anybody else. It's about liberation. It's about being free. It's about doing whatever feels good. It's whatever hell, you, know, you, you find helpful, whatever. And sex is between consenting adults in private. And we changed the culture, Playboy said. It's now automatic. So whether it's through the internet or whether it's through personal relationships, everybody knows that's the world we live in now. Playboy said, we've won our battle. 
sex. We, uh, it's a cliche to say, because it, but it's true, as cliches often are, that we live in an over-sexualized uh, society where actually whatever takes place, as long as it's between consenting adults, is not a problem. It's only a problem when we cross the very few thresholds now that we get very anxious about, uh, or when teenage pregnancy goes up and it costs the society more. Whatever feels good is acceptable. And that's the world, not the playboy alone, but that's the world, the obvious world in which we live. And then we turn to this ancient book. And as believers in Jesus, we come and we say, well, actually, how does this book help us make sense of the world that Playboy has created? And how do we respond to that world? So if you've got a Bible, um, let's turn to chapter 2 of Genesis, and let's pick up, uh, in a sense, this is clearly a passage that, um, a, and a sermon that reflects very closely with last week's sermon about the interplay between male and female. Uh, and so we pick it up at verse 19, chapter 2, verse 19. The Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he'd named them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, the man, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this, very, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. And the chapter finishes, the man and his wife were both naked, and they... Um, they felt no shame. One of the consequences of the creation of male and female, and the consequence of the um, female being created to be that helper, and we talked about it last week, that helper that's not sub sort of subservient, but the helper that actually is created because man, Adam, can't do it on his own. He can't look after creation as a man on his own. He needs a woman. He needs a woman because a woman is close enough but different enough that actually together we can do this work of dealing with creation. That's why man and woman was created. Not, and I said it last week and I'll say it again, it wasn't like Adam was lonely and so he needed someone to fall in love with. That's not the point of that passage. The passage is that you need the opposite to you, who's closest to you, but different than you, in order that we might do this work of looking after the creation. And then, the narrator said, and that's why, that's why a man will leave his home and will um, be united to his wife and they become one flesh. Why? Because they're different enough but actually, together, they create the uh, ability to, to do, not create a happy home, but actually to 
be part of this work of stewarding God's creation. Because it's within that relationship that you'll have children. The moment you have children, you're saying something very powerful about the world that you believe you're in. You have children because actually you have hope. This is not a busted flush. God is still involved here. That's why you have children. And so the whole work of filling the earth and subduing it, that's why you create this family and you become one flesh, a new unit, one people. Okay. When I was uh, starting out years and years and years ago in church work, I started out, as many people do, started out in youth work. I was a youth pastor for three years. And uh, about once a term, you had to do the sex talk. And it was like, oh. <laughs> and everybody sort of, everybody sort of, oh. this is not the sex talk. This is actually fundamental to the way the whole scripture unfolds. It's not a discrete topic. I've sort of um, obviously been thinking about this uh, for, for quite a while, but particularly this week. And I start out, as often preparing a sermon starts out, it's like, what on earth am I going to say? And then you end up, when you begin to recognize the issues you're dealing with, is what on earth am I not going to say? Because actually, all the way through Scripture, this male, female, and sexuality, the sexual ethics, begins to become such a primary theme throughout Scripture. Certainly it's one that Jesus uh, picks up. But interestingly, Jesus picks it up not purely to say, don't do this or don't do that. But Jesus, in Matthew 19, is test, being tested. If you've got a Bible, can you just flick with me to Matthew 19? And let's read this one together. Matthew 19. So the context is this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the, he was talking about the uh, that church, about the parable of the unmerciful servant. He left Galilee and he went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to test him. All right. So it's kind of like, it's not really a proper question. It's more a question of, depending on how you answer this, we'll know how to box you. Um, so depending on what you say next, we will know where you fit. The Pharisees came to test him and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? That's the question. Now, that was a real question at that day because uh, the Jewish authorities themselves were arguing about what, how do you get out of this marriage? What makes it legitimate to say, I think it's over? And some of them were going, to be honest, it's pretty much for any reason. And for others, they were going, no, you can never get out. And for others, they were going, there must be some reasons why you would uh, think a marriage was over. And this is what Jesus says. Haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator, quote, made them male and female, close quote, and said, quote, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his flesh, and the two will become one flesh, close quote. So they're no longer two, but they're one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. 
Why then? The Pharisees asked. Did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it wasn't this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if that's the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to get married. And, and, and I, thought, I think it's okay to smile at that point. <laughs> it's like, wow. And Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word but only those to whom it's been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others have been made eunuchs. And others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. There's a lot in that passage that's maybe worth exploring, but let me just highlight one or two things. Jesus, when he's asked the question, what kills a marriage? He starts off by going back to the beginning, to the passage we read. And he goes, well, actually, you're right. You know, divorce is a reality amongst Jewish people at that time. He goes, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. He's talking to men here. He permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it wasn't that way from the beginning. In the beginning, your hearts weren't hard, but something happened. And he explores then what kills a marriage and, and what doesn't. And he, he uses a phrase, what he says is that sexual immorality, that kills a marriage. It's not the case that you know, I don't think Jesus ever had in mind that, well, you know, if you have an affair, then it's automatically over. But I think what he's saying is actually that act of taking that most intimate moment and then giving it to someone else kills this relationship. Because that intimate moment is like, there's, that is the most intimate. And if then you say, well, actually, I'm going to just give it away over here, then Jesus says, well, actually, that's going to kill it here. See, Playboy said, sex is about liberation. It's a sexual revolution, freedom. And in a sense, what they were saying is we ought to just be we ought to be upfront about it. We ought to be free about it. And the problem with Playboy, and I'm kind of using Playboy just as a, a sort of an example, really. The problem is, is, is that they didn't think sex was important enough. That's the problem with the sexual ethic of today. It's not that we talk about sex too much in society. We don't understand how significant it is. It's kind of more important than a sexualized society realizes. It's the act that creates something new. And Jesus says, the problem with us is not our morality, it's the hardness of heart. And it seems to suggest that Jesus is thinking, but in the kingdom, a new heart is possible. The kingdom comes with a cure for hard hearts. There's a new way 
a recreation of all that has been disordered, a new heart, a reordered heart. The hardness is softened. The second thing Playboy said was that sex is private. That as long as it's done between two consenting adults, it doesn't matter what happens. But the Gospels say that's not true. If you go back, and you don't really need to, but just if, you, if you're interested, Matthew 14 tells a different story about sexual activity and how it matters. It's not about what happens between two adults in private. Herod was the ruler of that area at that time. He was, he was part Jewish, but he was in place because the Romans said, will you oversee this region? And Herod had the problem that rulers always have and people in power always have. They thought that essentially they were the top dog and whatever they wanted to do, they could do. And John the Baptist, this figure, this prophet who's been in the wilderness and baptizes Jesus, of course, and, but has really made his home outside of society, kind of wearing wild clothes and eating locusts and honey and kind of not the person that would be the easiest to get around. There's a time when Jesus is sort of like defending himself and people are saying to Jesus, oh, you're at parties all the time. You're, like a, you're just like a drunkard. And he goes, well... I'm, I do what I do. I come to parties and you've rejected me. John the Baptist, he came sort of proclaiming against you. You rejected him. So it's like, you just don't want to hear, do you? John the Baptist was the guy shouting in the wilderness. You're lost. You're lost. And Herod arrests John, verse 3. Binds him and put him in prison. Because of Herodias. A woman, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. And on Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a dish the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that a request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a dish and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. They went and told Jesus. And that's a, a picture you might want to put on your living room wall of John the Baptist being presented to Herod without his body. And what John, what's John the Baptist no. And what does Jesus know? Jesus knows that actually to start talking about sex and sex ethics is a political decision. It's not private. Actually, the moment you put your head above the parapet and go, no, that's wrong, that's a political statement. And for John the Baptist, that means you pay with your life. Our society says as long as it's private, it doesn't matter. As long, and that classic phrase, it's not hurting anybody. And Jesus comes and goes, no, no, it's not like that. It's not like that at all. All the way from the beginning, God's intention has always been for his people, that they would have 
a bigger picture and a different picture. Go back to Leviticus. Leviticus 18, by the way, is one of those, it's just like a long list of who you're allowed to sleep with and who you're not allowed to sleep with. It's just a long list of people and, and, and relationships. But it starts like this. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I'm the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live. And you mustn't do as they do in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. Don't follow their practices. You must obey my laws and you must be careful to follow my decrees. I'm the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws for the person who obeys them will live by them. I'm the Lord. And then the introduction. No one's to approach any close relative to have sexual relationships. I'm the Lord. It's kind of like set up in a way that's sort of really intriguing. He says, in Egypt, they wouldn't think twice about it. And in Canaan, they won't think twice about it. But for us, we're going to hold to a different way. In a culture that's blinded, that's turned away, we're called to be a different people. We're not called, by the way, to keep on sort of protesting about what everybody else does. We're not called to be angry people who go, are you wicked people? You're not called, we are not called to go on marches when they have gay pride in Manchester. We're not called to go with our banners on the sidelines going, it's wrong. That's not what we're called to do. What we're called to do is to be different. To be radically different. They did it in Egypt. They'll do it in Canaan. But for you. And it's interesting when Paul writes to the Corinthians. He has to deal with the same issue. Because they've got all sorts of stuff going on in that church. And um, in chapter 6 he begins it like this. Or in verse 12 when he's, he's writing about it. He, he begins with sort of like a two-way conversation. He, he says, I have the right to do anything you, anything you say. But not everything's good for you. I have the right to do anything. You say, but I'm not going to be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. But actually, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Now, at least two things going on there. One of them is people are going, it doesn't matter. And one of them's going, it's, it'll all get burnt up in the end. And one of them, people are going, it's, God's not worried about your bodies. It's about what your, what your spiritual side is. And Paul wants to say, no, actually, your body matters. Your physical, this bit, actually matters. And he's going to explain it like this. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he'll raise us also. Your body. It's not, you're not going to be sort of like a floating spirit in a cloud somewhere in the ether. Transform bodies is what Paul talks about. Don't you know your bodies are members of Christ himself? That your body is part of Christ's body. So, shall I take it and use it with a prostitute? Never. Don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with an body? For it said, and here he goes back to the beginning of Genesis, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. Don't you know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, there's all sorts of ways. I think the implications of that run out. 
your body matters. Let me deal with the other stuff first. Your body matters. I think, therefore, it matters how you look after it. Now, we age, and some stuff gets more difficult as we get older, but actually, your body matters, so look after it. Eat well. Don't drink too much. Exercise. Shower. <laughs> after you're exercising. Because actually, your body matters. So think about how you use it. Paul's big deal was flee sexual immorality. It was like, oh yeah, I must not do that. <laughs> but he's actually saying, because your body, this temple of the spirit. Playboy says, it's just about two consenting adults in private. And if no one else is hurt or is being hurt, it doesn't matter. And in Corinth, everybody thought like that. And Paul says, but not for us. And I, I don't know, you know, it's always the application of this stuff that's difficult. But what it means is, if you're tempted by the third click of the mouse on a computer, it's you and a computer screen. It's not hurting anybody else, you say. But Paul says, no, no, it's not about whether it hurts anybody. It's about who you are. It's, it's like that sixth chapter, by the way, the, the seventh chapter follows it, which is not a profound statement, but it's true. The seventh chapter follows it, and in the seventh chapter, he explores what it means to be married and not happy. He explores what it means to be single or engaged and wonder what to do next. And Paul is navigating his way through the very real situations of life, and, but always from the basis of your bodies matter. Your bodies matter. Okay. So why does this help us work out what sort of church we want to be? Because we're designed to be like the film trailer of the film that's coming soon. The big renewal of all things. That's the, that's the film that's coming. That's the story that's coming. And in the meantime, we're like the, the trailer that goes, you're not seeing it all, but you see enough glimpses to know what it's like. You see, if church is just where you as an individual comes to get a spiritual experience so you can go away again, then it's not automatic, but it's much more likely you'll think, well, it's just about what I think is right or wrong or what is good for me. And if it's not hurting anybody else, it's not going to hurt. But actually, if you see, no, church is not about coming to have a spiritual experience and then just going away again. But actually, church is being part of a people who create a different story, who live differently, who show a different story. And it's not, is it hurting anybody else? But it's actually, how do we demonstrate a different, a different culture? What do we together say about marriage, about sex, about singleness, 
about loss and about hope? What do we say when people come as they do and say, I've really messed up. My, my life relationally is just a mess. And I've done it. I've done that. That's what people will say sometimes. They say, I've made the mess relationally. What do we say? Or when you, and I'm really conscious this, this morning that it's like there's so many thin ice patches here that if I walk too far, I just go through all of them. But there's not one of us sitting in the room goes, I've, I've got this, this, there's a sore patch here. And please be careful how you touch it, Neil, because there's a sore area here in my life. Because some of you will be married and you go, I'm really struggling being married. Some of you are married to people who don't follow Jesus and you're struggling with that. Some of you are single and you wish you weren't. Some of you are single and you have been married, but it, it either fell apart or your partner died or it's not the way you wanted it to be. And it's about, well, what story do we tell together then about that? Because we're the film trailer of all that's to come. And so my last slide might sound a little mundane, really, a bit ordinary. But what, how can we help? Well, the first thing to say is, pray about your situation. And it sounds obvious. When Paul looks at people who are single in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, actually, I'd rather people were single. He said, I think it's easier to be single. That's what he actually says. But he says, but when you're single, in your singleness, serve God's purpose. And, and when he talks to married people, he goes, actually, when you're married, you've got a responsibility to the other person. You, your body belongs to them. Your body belongs to them. So think about how you serve one another. Pray about your situation. Pray that whatever your situation in life is, and of course, almost inevitably, it will keep on changing, but wherever the situation is, I'm gonna live to serve the purpose of God. Help one another. Help one another be faithful to the commitments we've made. Help one another to stay faithful. And that, that's in a whole range of ways, isn't it? And whatever the faithfulness, the context is, but help one another for that. Work in your context for fruitfulness. That actually wherever you find yourself, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work out my life in this situation that I might live for the fruitfulness of God. And then finally, hold on to the mission that we're part of. That we're pointers of a better way. Playboy said, we've won the battle. Because the culture has said, sex is liberation and sex is about private. Genesis goes, no, no, no. About a much different story. It's not simply about liberation. Actually, sex is far more important than that. And it's not about whatever doesn't hurt you or anybody else. But it's actually that these relationships matter. 
because we tell a bigger and a better story. We were created to be known. We were created to be known. Well, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to do the sort of brave thing to say what you're thinking, knowing that most of you will not want to say anything, perhaps. But you probably have things to say, and you probably have really good stuff to say, because there's only so much you can say in 20 minutes or so. But I wonder whether first we just take a moment that the helpful stuff will stick and the stuff that's not will fall to the floor. Lord, when we gather like this, we're all in different situations and different stages of life. And some of us feel we're in the place where we want to be and some of us feel it's far from ideal. Some of us are at a stage of life where we've, we've had to wrestle with the stuff we deal with and we've done it, we've wrestled. And some of us are at a stage of life when we're still wrestling with all this. Lord, we know that the world, the flesh and the devil would seek to wage war against us. Not so that we just slip up, but that we stop being the picture of what God would want people to be. Lord, will you help us to live faithfully for you? In our singleness, in our married state, will you help us to live faithfully for you? Telling a better story. Not just in our household, but Lord, in our church, in our community, that together we demonstrate something else. And Lord, to a, in, a, in the midst of a country and a culture where people just often will feel quite lost, Lord, I pray that we would see people being saved, literally. Lord, we ask it in your name. Okay. What are you thinking? Or what were you thinking? What was going through your head? Or um, how, do we, how do you reconcile the apparent kind of contradiction between Genesis saying it is not right for man to be alone and Paul saying it is best that we are single? <laughs> Some people would say Paul's been married. Um, <laughs> I think the difference is because I think they're talking about two different things I think that's the, that's the thing that for me I've come back to in a I think it's made much more sense that the reason for male-female relationship and marriage is actually because we've got the creation to deal with and we've got the um, you know children and all the rest of it I think what Paul's talking about are two things firstly there is clearly something going on in Paul's mind about the Corinthian situation he talks about this time of stress and strain we're in. And at the moment, it might be better to stay single because I think for Paul, he's almost imagining we've not got much time here. But I think the other thing for Paul is, and as Paul, and it would be unusual actually, the interesting thing is it's really unusual that Jesus is single. 
and, and on a different map, by the way, Jesus, in staying single, in being single, was probably making a very profound countercultural point because everybody would expect him to be married. From birth to death, all the way through Jesus' life, there were things about Jesus that people would go, he's not quite right, is he? He talks about a virgin birth. He ends up being crucified like a rebel, and he doesn't get married. What's wrong with the man? It's like Jesus always is making a statement about the way he's conducting his own life. And I think Paul is almost doing the same. Paul's saying, actually, in our culture, the more, more important thing is not your own personal relationships, but actually far more significant is, how's God using you? Now, Paul's really down to earth. He goes, to be honest, if you can't live singly, I mean, he, you know, he says it's the, the, the polite way is it's better to marry than burn. There's a more earthy way of putting it. And, and, and some of you are going, if it was only that easy. Um, you know, but it's kind of like Paul's really recognizing that. And I think he's really down at worth. He's going, if you've got problems sexually then, and, you, and you, you want an outlet, get married for heaven's sake. Stop. Don't be a martyr. But for, for some people, particularly, their situation will enable them to discover that actually they can serve God here. Now, it's not without pain and it's not without regret, but then that's in all sorts of areas. So I think that's how I marry the two together. Oh, I shouldn't use that word, but you know what I mean. That's how I hold the two together. So what are you thinking? I was just thinking that obviously the churches, and we're, we're, I was thinking I was talking to Jay when we were saying that this weekend, that the church is often um, regarded for what it stands against and what it sort of tells people they're not allowed to do and that displeases God. And obviously there's always extreme cases of that, you know, in the media and stuff. But actually, I think, I think the, the, like you said it before, the Bible is much more earthy than a lot of Christians are. Mm. And the Bible really celebrates sex. And I think that's really liber actually is, you know, you, to use the word, it's liberating for us as Christians. Because when we talk about areas like sexuality and like sex, we can say, no, God, God is God's idea, like, you know, that it's to be celebrated. However, it, it, and it's not that we just turn around and look to other people and say, you shouldn't do it like that, and you shouldn't do it with that person, you shouldn't do it that many times, you shouldn't do it before you're married. And we're actually saying it's so important, yeah. you know, yeah. and that's, that's actually a really, that's actually good news, isn't it? Because yeah. usually we only have bad news to tell non-Christians about stuff like this. It's yeah. like, you shouldn't do that, and you're a bad person because you do that. But actually, it's really good news because we are telling a good story here. We're saying sex is great, but do you know how precious it is? Yeah. You, we need to, you need to keep it between one person, you know? And I don't know, I just find that quite liberating because people do, you do get questions at work or, you know, at the pub or whatever, and they'll say, oh, they'll, they'll make comments about it and say, oh, but you're a Christian, so you, you know, you think like this. But actually, we can tell a re really good story here in this one. Makes you wonder what, what would happen if we did evangelistic tracks with just the Song of Solomon. Um, and we just, <laughs> we, got, we got like uh, one of our books, one of our books of the Bible, Song of Solomon, eight chapters just about love and sex and the wonders of sexuality. And people wouldn't expect it. But there's like, because there's no area of life in which God's not wanting to say, actually, it's mine. I can use that. Okay, anybody else? I was just thinking a little bit about how we talk to our young people about this, because obviously working in a school, I'm very aware that living in the culture in which we're in, 
Um, and I actually work in a school where the kids would be classed as naive, and they're just not. Mm. Children know a massive amount now. You can talk to them about anything, and they'll know what you're talking about. And on the one hand, that could be considered a bad thing, but on the other hand, I can talk quite openly to a group of 13, 14-year-olds, and they've got questions. They want to know a different story. They're desperate to hear it. Mm. And I just think, you know, how do we as a church actually, you know, build on that, take, you know, children away from, you know, what the culture is telling them, which they know all about, mm. to giving them a very different story. Yeah. Someone else, thanks for I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's people like you that are having those situations because of your work context particularly. But then also those of you that have got children that are growing up to actually, how do you, and grandchildren, how do you have the conversations with them? I think, you know, we've got a church full of children. Yeah. And they are going to start learning things very, very soon, no matter how young they are. Yeah. You know, like you're talking primary school age. Yeah. You know, this is the age where they're starting to pick up on things, yeah. so... How do we deal with, like, there's somebody that I love very much, a member of my family, um, that's gay. How do we deal with that? I mean, obviously, I still love the person very much, um, but they're not open to anything about the Bible, and obviously, I can't judge her. I mean, it's it's the it's 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 an obvious question and it's a good question, um, and and without having chance to really sort of go into any detail at this point, except to say this. I I think that um, some Christians can give the impression that actually that's the that's the one deal breaker with God, that God has nothing to do with you because of your sexual orientation, and I think that some uh, folks in the gay community think that on the whole, the church wants nothing to do with them because they think they're different and that they're against them. Um, and it, and there's, so there's some obvious things, aren't there? There's the obvious thing that God really, really, really loves them, as he does all of us. That God sees our disordered sexuality, whether you're gay, straight, or you're not quite sure, and actually, with all of our sexuality, he's wanting to bring it into his renewal of all things. He's wanting to heal what's broken, and I think he's wanting to forgive what's wrong, what's sinful. Um, but your sexual orientation is not, is not the only thing about you. It's not, it's not the, I don't want it to be the big badge that sets me up to have the only conversation I can have with this person. There, there may be a lot more interesting things about this person than their sexual orientation, to be honest. Um, and so in, in dealing with them, this is a really big question. It's one that we're thinking through as well because for other reasons that we've been challenged about recently, um, how do we as a church, how do we as a church deal with that? But I would think it's clearly against the gospel to say, you know, it's like we, we, we've, got a, we've got new welcome teams with badges. You may have noticed um, today you may have heard one um, who welcomes from a distance and um, you know we could give them a little list of things to tick off 
you know, like, where, where have you been this week? And what have you been doing? And who have you been doing it with? And clearly, that would be stupid. None of us want to have that. And so it's kind of like, well, actually, you're welcome to be coming into this community of people who are trying to discover a new story about what it means to live faithfully for God. You're welcome. But I don't think that God lets any of our sexuality off the hook. So it's not, are you gay? Because if you're gay, you've got a big problem. If you're straight, you've got no problems. I think whether you're gay or straight, God says, actually, we've all been marred by sin. We're all out of whack. And actually, we've all need to be both forgiven and restored. So I think in some ways, I, I think the answer is more complex than yes or no, gay or straight, da-da-da, makes it sound. Because I think God deals with us as, as, as individuals. And I know that some of you have got family who would, who would identify themselves as gay. I know that some of you inevitably... You know, it's almost like almost increasingly and inevitably in any context, there'll be people who go, there's been times when I've not been quite sure myself where I stand on this. Uh, not intellectually, I mean, as, a, as an individual. And yet we come into a context where we go, well, actually, we're a community under God who, and God wants to deal with us. All of us. Um, so he loves us. We pray, we are being sorted. And yet, we do. As a church, we hold to a, a, a sort of like traditional orthodox position that goes, actually, we think that some things are outside of God's desire and purpose, best purpose for our lives. Some things are sinful. But to be honest, there's a whole list of sin, sins that are, uh, that are out of his desire. Being greedy is out. Gossiping is out, telling lies is out, sexual ethics are out, you know, certain sexual practices. Pornography is out. Having an affair is out. There's a whole stack of things. And actually, we need forgiveness for them all. And we do come on a level playing field before the cross. It's a really good question, Val. And in trying to answer it in three minutes is dangerous because some of you are going yeah but you didn't say this or you didn't say that or do you mean that and that's a conversation that's worth having um, because the culture around us will want to push us into an either or position and I think we're going to have to work out a more a, a, a clear position I don't, I don't want to fudge on this I don't want to sort of say oh it doesn't matter in the end but actually the practical side of how do we welcome people who are not the same, particularly people who are coming from a non-Christian perspective. You don't go to hell because you're gay. That's the bottom line. It's actually about this grace that's offered to you. Will you take the grace that's offered to you and let God deal with all of us?